0: The Lord be with you. with your spirit. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. A reading from Job, chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Um, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And the Satan also came with them. The Lord said to the Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does God fear Job for nothing? Satan replied, "'Have you not put a hedge around him "'and his household and everything he has? "'You have blessed the work of his hands "'so that his flocks and herds "'are spread throughout the land. "'But stretch out your hand "'and strike everything he has, "'and he will surely curse you to your face.' "'The Lord said to Satan, "'Very well, then, everything he has is in your hands, "'but on the man himself do not lay a finger.' Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So uh, this is a prosaic and pretty matter-of-fact description of what happens in God's throne room and the heavenly council. So it's, it, it's like a vision. Um, I'm, this is where we stop. Let me switch forward to the next slide. Um, this is like a vision. Like a vision... Um, we are taken with the angels and Satan into the throne room and the council chamber of the Lord. Now, the author does not describe this as his vision. and I'm not saying it is his vision. He may be reporting somebody else's vision. But I think there are strong resemblance between this description and the visions of the prophet named Micaiah in 1 Kings 22, that of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6, which you may be familiar with. I saw the Lord seated on a throne. Um, And also descriptions in uh, Psalm 89 and in 82. Uh, In all these, God is present on his throne, surrounded by an assembly or council of heavenly beings. There is a similarity to all these descriptions. Uh, And they are all symbolic. Um, We may study Revelation sometime in the future. We've done it in the study and, and just about everything after chapter 3 in Revelation is symbolic. And one of those is the symbolism of the throne room, which bears resemblance to what happens in Job. Now, this doesn't mean that they are not describing something real. Uh, the Bible uses symbolism to convey some sense of a reality that is uh, just staggeringly beyond any human capacity understand or, or even behold what is actually going on. So it's part of God's condescension to reveal himself to us. The throne of God symbolizes God's majesty and absolute sovereignty. And it isn't just a symbol. God really is majestic and absolutely sovereign. And his throne is also where his power and his presence encounter his creation, He is the king of all creation. The the assembly of heaven, or sometimes it's called the council, or sometimes it's just described as multitudinous beings surrounding the throne, is an apt description of an order of transcendent created beings. Normally we call them the angels, but I'll just call them transcendent created beings because they are created and they do transcend the physical plane of our existence. And they serve as God's mediators, uh, his servants and messengers. Not in the way that Christ is our mediator, but mediators nonetheless. For example, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Get up, take your wife and child, and flee to Egypt. So the Lord uses angels to do those types of things. Uh, the Satan was one of these, but he became the ringleader of the transcendent created beings who did not keep their first estate in the King James uh, in Jude six, uh, And they rebelled against God. And it's a good question of, well, how was that even possible? But fortunately, it's not a question that I have to deal with right now in the book of Job. Uh, you, you may bring up that question and any other question you may feel like bringing up in the question and answer period. So God gives Satan permission to test Job by destroying his wealth and family. God sets up the test and sets the parameters, not not Satan. God is absolutely in control here, which begs the question, well, why is God doing this? Um, I'll get to it again when we come to the conclusion, but... This is God's way of defeating evil. He could annihilate evil. But this is his way of defeating evil, not necessarily on its own terms, but defeating evil so that he may redeem creation and not just destroy it. So Job knows none of this. Uh, Job is completely in the dark with regard to why he is suffering like this. And by the way as far as in the story is concerned, beyond God and Satan and some of the angelic counsel, so is every other human being in the story. is totally ignorant of why this is happening to Job. Keep that in mind. Because uh, professing ignorance is sometimes the best thing to do in certain situations. Um, So so in a series of disasters, which I, I recommend you read, there is symbolism in not only uh, Job's livestock, there is a repetition of sevens and threes, and then four. Uh, there there are four announcements of disasters, which symbolizes completeness. You know, Job is completely and utterly ruined. Um, he loses first all his livestock, uh, most of his servants, and then his sons and daughters, uh, and a house collapses on his sons and daughters. His wife is still alive but his wife uh, is not going to be much help. Uh, Job responds with deep grief, but he did not sin or charge God with wrong. Uh, let me go ahead and read the next section, Job 2, 1 through 6. So that was uh, his, the first phase of the test. So on another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with him to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it, everywhere and nowhere, And is basically what he's saying. Um, it comes across more in the Hebrew and even in the English. Uh, we, we get a sign of almost a smart aleck, impudent uh, sort of response to God. Um, This is not reverent, and Satan does not regard God as his Lord uh, in a personal sense. Then the Lord said to Satan, "'Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason.'" Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. And then so, Satan again accuses Job of self-serving faith. trying to save his own skin simply by uh, regarding God. God gives the Satan permission to strike Job himself, and he afflicts Job with painful sores all over his body. Job's wife urges Job to despair. I didn't read that part, but she says, Curse God and die. She urges him to blame and curse God and accept death, perhaps by suicide. Uh, Certainly, uh, cursing God in that situation, those circumstances, that worldview shared by those people, cursing God would be inviting a death sentence if it was not in itself just an idiomatic way of saying, why don't you just kill yourself? But Job still maintained his integrity and did not sin in what he said. Job's friends came to comfort him. His suffering first moved them to silence... And they sat quietly, perhaps they were praying, for seven days and seven nights. And then Job laments. Um, I'm going to read his lament. Job chapter 3, verses, I'm going to skip around, verses 1 through 4, 11, 13 through 14, 20 through 21, and 25 through 26. Yes, yes crosses the line there after this job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth he said may the day of my birth perish and the night it was said a boy is born that day may it turn to darkness may God above not care about it may no light shine upon it Verse 11, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come? Who search for it more than for hidden treasure? What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. So that startles us. If you have never read that before, not sure what you would be expecting, and if you knew nothing about Job, which probably applies to no one at all in here. But if you hadn't heard it, it would startle you, and we will soon find out, that it shocks his friends. And it's intended to be shocking. It would have been shocking to the first readers. What, who, who are you to reply this way? Job, who do you think you are? Which is, in effect, what the friends say. So Job does not mouth pious platitudes or calendar verses. He probably did not have a calendar with verses from Proverbs on it. Um, So this is not a hallmark moment. Uh, The goodness and order that Job had experienced in life have become darkness and chaos. The God who blessed him now seemed to be his enemy. And he will express that emotion. He, He will not directly call God his enemy. He will not curse God. But he will express his deep emotion and his beyond emotion, the anguish of his soul, that he has somehow become the enemy of God. Out of the anguish of his heart and the agonizing pain of his body, Job. it seems like it might have been something akin to the pain of shingles. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I have not had shingles but I understand. It's like some of the most excruciating and annoying pain you can possibly experience on your skin. Uh, We don't know exactly what it was, but it was deeply, deeply painful uh, and unrelieved. So he doesn't curse God, but he curses the day he was born and longs for death. Now he does express his despondency and bitterness, but he does not curse God and he does not consider suicide. He longs for immediate relief and rest, which he believes death will bring him. Um, and if, if we had a friend who expressed that, and I'm not saying that this is Job, this is Revelation, this, this was then and this is now. I'm not saying it's exactly always appropriate to express ourselves exactly like Job. But if you read some of the Psalms, the Lament Psalms, and some of the anguish that David and others in uh, unknown authored psalms about the the deep pain and emotion they felt. There was one, um, it was my prayer for a while. Uh, There was nothing deeply wrong with me. I had graduated from seminary, uh, and I couldn't get a job. Um, Long story short, so I prayed Psalm 13, Oh, just about every day. Psalm thirteen begins, "How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever?" and and of course, at the end of that psalm, like at the end of every lament psalm, there is an expression of faith and trust in God. There isn't one here, so there are some 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 scholars would say, "Well, this isn't really a lament; it's it's a complaint." Um, you know, you say tomato. I say tomato. Uh, it, It is a lament, and there may not be an expression of trust, but the fact that Job never curses God or considers killing himself is an unspoken expression of trust. So, what is revealed to us in the prologue and in Job's lament? What is the message of this? Uh, Well, first of all, the central tension that Job feels and that we feel throughout the story is his his belief in God and the way Job thinks the world's supposed to work and the way God works and Job's actual personal experience. There's, there's There's a disconnect there, an experience of deep... I wouldn't say cognitive dissonance. It's beyond cognitive dissonance. We'll say existential dissonance. You know, this is not how life works. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how a relationship with God is. There is always, though, unspoken, a nevertheless. There's always a nevertheless in what Job has to say. And I think I'll just bring it up now and let's say never forget it. Uh, Nevertheless, Job says, uh, I'm, I'm not going to curse God. I am not going to utterly despair and give up. Though he comes right up to the edge. So there's that tension. We know, Job doesn't know, but it's being revealed to us. So it's part of the message that there's a cosmic conflict between God and Satan. I'll call it a cosmic conflict for lack of a better term. And that is the framework within we us understand the book of Job, and it is. So Job is undergoing a test. He doesn't know it, and we don't know that he ever knows it, seriously. And I'm not saying that every time you don't know why you're suffering, that means God is testing your faith. That, that's not the message. Sometimes when you don't know why you're suffering, you don't know why you're suffering. And that's about all you can possibly know about it at times. Um, For those of you who have a mind to uh, think ahead theologically, I I will get to it, but this immediately um, begins to transform into a discussion of the problem of evil. Why is there evil? Um, and, And we have arguments, and then it becomes well, why is there so much evil? So Job probably had suffering in his life, but nothing like this. We understand, though, that this is a cosmic conflict between God and Satan, and that's the framework which we understand not only Job, but God's plan in history to defeat evil. Not necessarily our own personal experience every time, but I'm not saying it couldn't be the case either. Um, This is God's plan in history to defeat evil, rather than simply annihilate it, to defeat evil and and redeem his creation, because he could annihilate evil at at midnight tonight, so which one of us would still be here? Um, How much of the creation left? It would be a, a sterilized creation, because... This is just an analogy, not an argument. But evil is not like a virus that you could eradicate from your body. It's more like a metastasized cancer, uh, which you can't operate on, and which neither chemo nor radiation are going to necessarily get rid of. And by the way, I don't mean to say cancer is evil if you experience it. It's just an analogy. So destroying evil, annihilating it, would be for God annihilating his creation. And he isn't going to do that. He's going to defeat evil and redeem creation. The conflict dependent <clears> on <throat> Job is not simply a way to symbolize a generic struggle between good and evil. Um, just so you know, I think there is a real malevolent, personal, transcendent created being um, called the Satan. I, I think there's one of those and I also believe he is the chief uh, among many. Uh, there are real entities and real stakes involved here. This is not just a story about good and evil. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with stories about good and evil, but this isn't one of those. Nor is the conflict a dualistic, eternal struggle between equal antagonists. This is not like a good god and an evil god, you know, the... the the light side of the force and the dark side of the force. But even there, you know, everybody knows the light side is better and is going to win anyway. So if that were real dualism, there would be a whole other set of Star Wars movies where the dark side wins and stays in power for many millennia or something like that. So this is not that. God is sovereign and almighty. He is in complete control of his creation, including the Satan, And just as sometimes it doesn't seem like us that's what's going on, it did not seem to Job that that was going on. But we know that's what was going on. So God permits evil for a time, but even evil is made to serve God's redemptive purposes. There are many stories in the Bible that point this out, starting with God's intervention in Joseph's life, right up to the, the most heinous, cruel murder in human history, the crucifixion of, of the incarnation of God on a cross. So evil is made to serve redemptive purposes. That's one reason God permits evil. I think he also permits evil to continue for a time so that it will be shown to be what it truly is. I think history itself shows evil always overextends itself. It always presumes upon its own power, and it is destroyed by its own pride and presumption. I think that thought is where the idea of uh, Greek and Shakespearean tragedy came from. God also permits evil to continue for a time to show that it will be shown to be what it truly is. To paraphrase Paul in Romans 17, so that evil will will show itself to be exceedingly evil. So that it will be revealed in all its evilness. Um, There we go. According to uh, Derek Kidner is a well-known, was a well-known. I think he has passed away. Uh, Old Testament scholars written several books on wisdom literature. Uh, He says that divine permission God gives the accuser in Job reflects the consistent practice of God. God gives permission to evil. We don't like that. I don't like it. You don't like it. Nobody likes it. I don't think God expects us to like it. But in fact, uh, this is God's consistent practice in dealing with and defeating evil. We don't necessarily have to like it, but we do have to recognize that if God does it, then it must be necessary. So it's not a one-off event. Uh, Jesus Himself promised um, at at the uh, discourse at the Last Supper in the Gospel of John, He promised, and yet it it actually is a promise. It's not a promise anybody puts on their calendar that in this world we will have trouble. Uh, I, I promise you, you will have trouble. Of course. He finishes that by saying, but don't fear, I have overcome the world. Not, you're going to overcome the world. I have overcome the world. We overcome the world in Christ. So suffering is not an anomaly. It's not something that only happens to some people sometimes. It happens to everybody all the time. And enduring suffering and remaining faithful is the way that in Christ, we overcome the world through Christ. Another central question the author wants us to confront, the author of Job, is why do we worship God? Uh, Do we worship him only for his benefits or for who he truly is? Um, I happen to think uh, the prosperity gospel and what I'll call the progressive social justice gospel, which neither one of them is actually the gospel, are basically flip sides of the same coin. Both of them believe that we seek God for his material benefits. One is very personalistic, individualistic, might I say, uh, very American. Don't mistake me, I love this country, and, and I stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. But uh, we do have a hyper-individualistic, individu- hyper self-sufficient ethic sometimes. Um, and on the other hand, uh, and, and so the, the gospel of prosperity, the health and wealth gospel, basically says, well, you, you worship God for the benefits he can give you. Uh, progressive social justice gospel does the same thing. You, you seek God's will, and God's will is that, you know, everybody have uh, health care, and I've got nothing against health care, by the way. It's a good thing. <coughs> um, you know, have, you know, free child care, um, uh, apparently uh, forgiveness of their student loans, and all other material benefits. Uh, Neither one of those is the gospel, and neither one of those is the reasons why we should worship God. The author also establishes firmly the theme of the righteous sufferer. We know immediately and firmly that Job is innocent and does not suffer because of his own sin. And I (coughs) I wanted to point out Uh, This isn't in the notes. It's not up here and it's not up there. As I was uh, reading Job again and actually compiling this lesson, it occurred to me, not not only with the vision in the front, but this idea of the righteous sufferer and suffering for something that really isn't your fault. There are more resemblance between Job and apocalyptic literature than I've seen anybody recognize. Um, (coughs) And... um, Uh, For those of you who may have studied this, I'm not saying that Job is apocalyptic literature. It does not have the characteristics of the genre. But it does reveal to us the, the transcendent reality that is actually controlling history, just like the book of Revelation does. And it also shows us that those who truly worship God and maintain their integrity, do not curse God and are faithful to Jesus Christ, are going to suffer Now the difference is, we're told, Job didn't know. Job was not part of the covenant people of Israel. He was not a uh, Christian. Um, This is part of uh, what Nick was mentioning in his sermon, where uh, God promises to the woman that her seed will crush the serpent's head. This is the proto-gospel. I believe that Job actually points forward to what's going to happen with, uh, in the book of Revelation as what's described in the book of Revelation. Not, not in, it is not apocalyptic literature, but I think it has resemblances to it. And two of those resemblances are the idea of, of that vision revealing us what's really going on in history and the idea that those who remain faithful to God are going to suffer precisely for remaining faithful to God. The idea will come up when we discuss the response of Job's friends. But Job's friends were, in fact, encouraging him to, to worship God for his benefits. Just repent, Job, and everything will be okay. Admit you're a sinner. But, but if Job had done that, he would be lying. Uh, we know, because we're told, and Job knew, because he was Job, that Job had done no such thing. So if he had done what the friends had said, he would actually be... Uh, rejecting the truth he knew about God. So there are also affinities between the book of Job and Isaiah chapters 40 through 45, where we find descriptions of the suffering servant, the most famous being Isaiah 53. Uh, The most significant is the theme of the righteous sufferer, developed in Job and in Isaiah's portraits of the suffering servant who suffer vicariously, who suffers vicariously for the sin of others, not his own. Now, uh, John Hartley is another well-known Job commentator. He says suffering vicariously is only hinted at in the book of Job, uh, particularly when God tells Job to to make uh, atonement for and pray for his sins. But the message of Job, of the book of Job, prepared... The people, the people of Israel, to understand and receive Isaiah's message that God was going to redeem his people and the world for the innocent suffering of his obedient servant. And that begins to come across immediately in the first three chapters and becomes uh, really part of what Job is trying to tell us throughout the whole book. Um, I'm going to pause there. That's lesson 10, and I think we have enough time for questions. Oh, we have like eight minutes um, for questions uh, about anything, including the problem of evil, if you want to dive into that. Does anybody have any questions? I have a question about Job's, Job's children. Job's children. What it about like Job's children? They just, yes. it... Um, so so Job's children and, and all his servants who were killed get used as pawns in a bet Satan has with God. That's about the most uh, ironic and negative way of putting that I can think of. Um, that's a good question. And the first thing I'll say is I think about it and I wonder... Um, the author gives no answers and the only answer i can come up with is well a house fell on them so they probably didn't suffer much but then the most important one is to understand death is not the ultimate penalty Um, it's that answer isn't going to satisfy somebody who is you know Looking for something to argue with God about. It just isn't. I'm not saying the question's illegitimate, um, but um, we're going to ask the same question if one of our children dies, uh, or a close relative or something like that who seems to die before their time, or seems to buy, uh, die in an accident. Um, there was a well known accident out here on, uh, I think it was the Gene Snyder. Uh, For years and years and years, you could see the burnt spot on the road. Um, It was southbound on the right-hand side. Two kids driving home from, I don't know, a date or from high school. Seniors doing nothing wrong were hit head-on by a drunk driver, and their car burst into flame, and of course they died horribly. And you wonder, why did that happen? That, that was a very well-known accident if you live in Louisville, like, like the Carrollton bus crash, only right here. And I mentioned, I think they finally redid the surface of the road, but there was a memorial there, um, and you could literally see the burnt spot in the road where the car had burned furiously. So why did God do that? Why did God even allow that to happen? And the honest answer is, well, we don't know. Um, and when students used to ask me questions like that, I used to say, well, we don't know, or ask about what about babies who died, I said, well, I don't know, but I just know they're in the hands of a just and loving God, so the author doesn't give that answer, but that's that's the answer I think of um, Any other questions? Uh, so yes? It's probably better if Nick was answering this, because it's, it's his uh, you know, court aid, but there's a couple of movies that come to mind with innocent people dying. I think uh, The Green Mile comes to mind. I don't know if you all have... A uh, couple of movies where people die innocently, like yeah. The Green Mile. That was the one by... I've, I know I've seen it, but only on TV. Yeah, and I just... I, I know that's uh, kind of off the beat, but you, know, you, you, you can really relate with Job. You relate he's suffering, and he doesn't know why, and he hasn't done anything wrong. And it just it, it gets at the heart of of being human. It just you you know when we suffer and you know you've done something wrong or you've made a bad choice, you you kind of feel well I'm I'm getting what I do what I what I'm owed. Job you you don't ever you don't ever get that. You just it does really doesn't question my faith, but it does it does just open up so many questions. And evil is one of them, right? And why why. If if God is all loving and yes, God is all exactly. powerful, why is there evil in the world? So if you have got a few weeks, we could start talking about that. That would be that would be under apologetics. Uh, it is a subject in Job, but as I said um, very briefly at the beginning, uh, the the only answer that if it's an answer that the author of Job gives is that um, God is in control, and as a matter of fact, that's how God is going to express himself when God finally speaks for himself and gets tired of his self-appointed spokesman speaking for him. By the way, there are a lot of self-appointed spokesmen for God. I can name names, but I won't. I'm sure you have some names you could name, and... I think God, I'm, I'm not going to question their salvation, but I think God might have a few words with them at some point. Um, other questions about Job's lament or the second part of the prologue? Okay, well, thank you very much. We'll continue next week with the responses of Job's friends. That's how they're described initially in the book. Thank you very much.